I get up every day and I go to work. Trust me when I say it's not always easy. But every day I get up and I go to work and I do it for them. Each and every one of them. they could come with me every day, but they can't. But in some ways, they are with me all day long. I do this for them. There's an old Easter hymn that asks the question, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? That's a crazy question. Of course not. That was thousands of years ago. I wasn't there. But on that day, Jesus got up and he went to work. And he did it for you for me. So even though I wasn't there with him, in some ways, I really was there. Were you there? So there's probably a couple of questions that you have as you saw that video. First of all, you were thinking, when did Nathan have kids? It was a little awkward. Those are my kids and my wife, but uh, Nathan was standing in. And then the second question you were probably asking was, how did you do that last shot? At least I hope that you're asking that because I think it's really cool. Uh, that was on a, a, a hobby of mine. I built a, I built a drone. Okay, and it's got a, it's not actually a drone, it's just a remote controlled um, quadcopter, but I put a camera on it, and that was the first, uh, like, real thing that it's done, and I think it's really cool, I hope that you liked it. You can, uh, you can expect to see more of it, I'm sure, in the future, so that's kind of fun. Today, uh, we're in the middle of a series called Were You There?, and I think the, the video does a good job of setting up our theme. Because the, the question is, you know, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And when you first hear that question, it's like, no, of course not, I wasn't there. That was thousands of years ago. I mean, I wasn't there. I wasn't even born. But when you think about the story of what Jesus did, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for your sins. He died for you just as much as he did for those followers that were actually there. And during this series, we're trying to put ourselves into some of these scenes from, uh, from the story of Jesus being crucified and ask the question, what would, have, what, it, what, what would it have been like to really be there? 
And today we're going to be looking at uh, a story of Jesus before um, some councils being tried. For many of you, it's a, it's a familiar story. Uh, in fact, most every Easter, we, we look at this story in, in some kind of detail. And so for, for many of you, you've heard this story many times before, but today I'd, I'd like to ask you to, to put yourself into this story and to ask yourself the question, what would it have been like if I was really there? And at the end of the day, there's one question that I hope that we can answer together. There's one question that I want to, I want to, to drive home, I want to put before you. And the question is, is fairly simple, but it's the most meaningful question that any one of us will ever answer in our life. And the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Now, when I ask that question, there's probably uh, a picture that comes into your mind. All of us have made up our, made up our minds about who Jesus is. Uh, in fact, in our culture today, I think there's lots of different views of who, of who Jesus is. I just jotted down a few of them. One uh, is the touchdown Jesus. You know the touchdown Jesus? He's, he's the one that, that helps athletes run faster and jump higher, and he determines the outcomes of the Super Bowls, and when uh, an athlete is in, in front of the camera, you know, he's their Jesus. Do you know Super Bowl Jesus? Or, or maybe there's Starbucks Jesus who, who drinks only fair trade coffee, and he probably drives a hybrid, and he goes to film festivals and loves conversations about feeding the poor and world peace. That's a pretty popular Jesus in our culture today. There's therapist Jesus who helps you cope with life's problems and he heals your past and he tells you how, value, how valuable you are and how you need to be the best version of you that you can be. There's hippie Jesus, who's popular in our culture today. Hippie Jesus that teaches everyone to, to give peace a chance and imagines a world where everyone holds hands and hugs a lot and, you know, helps us all to remember that all we need is love. That's all we need. We just need love. There's inspirational Jesus who encourages us to, to reach our full potential and to reach for the stars and you can do it and never give up. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion and churches and pastors and priests and doctrine and would rather have people out in nature finding the God within while listening to ambiguously spiritual music in the background. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to, to rebel against the status quo and to blame things on the system. And, of course, Jesus is a revolutionary and that's who we want to follow. And there's gentle Jesus, who's meek and mild and has high cheekbones and creamy white skin and flowing hair and walks around in sandals and wears a sash. And he always looks German. Isn't that true? When you think about it, the pictures of Jesus, milky white skin, high cheekbones, it looks like German, a German, German guy. The question is, who is Jesus to you? And this isn't a... This isn't an intellectual question in terms of, you know, I believe that, 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 that this is who, you know, Jesus was, that he was a guy and he walked around. I mean, what difference does it make in your life? 
Who is Jesus to you when it comes to the very deepest parts of you? And that's the question that I want to get to today. Who is Jesus? Now, there was a guy named C.S. Lewis that uh, many of you will recognize that name. He's famous for... um, he was a thinker, uh, a Christian author during the 30s and 40s, and he wrote uh, books like the, the Chronicles of Narnia. You'll remember that. But he was a very, very deep guy. And C.S. Lewis um, posed this question. He said, when Jesus claimed to be God, it poses a problem for us. By Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, to be God himself, to be the Messiah, it poses a problem for us because that is either false or it's true. There's no other real options, are there? It's not like you could kind of be God, you know. He's either the real deal or he's not, right? Those are the options. It's either false or true. but, But on this side of things, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, if that is indeed false, he either knew it or he didn't. So let's say that Jesus claims to be God, and that's not true. And he knew that it wasn't true. Yet he went around spouting, hey, I'm, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Savior of the world, I've come, I'm the Son of God. What does that make Jesus? Makes him a liar. That's exactly right. No one goes around and, and, and proclaims something that's not true, and we, we, we would call anybody like that a liar, and a liar of the worst kind, really. A liar that's deceiving people when it comes to the most meaningful part of their life. Now, let's say that Jesus claimed to be God, and that wasn't true, it was false, but he didn't know it. Like, he thought he was God. What does that make him? Crazy. It makes him a lunatic, is how C.S. Lewis put it. It makes him a lunatic. I mean, anybody who goes around thinking that they're God when they really aren't, they're crazy. They're out of their minds. In fact, you, some of you will remember names of people who have come along, you know, in, in American history even, who have claimed to be something that they weren't. And what do we call them? Lunatics. But if Jesus claims to be God, and if that is indeed true, what does that make him? It makes him God. It makes him Lord. And how C.S. Lewis put it was he's either liar, he's lunatic, or he's Lord. Those are the options. In fact, I want to read you the the words of C.S. Lewis. He wrote this in a book called Mere Christianity. He said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. And that is that I'm, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is kind of a common thing in, in our culture today, right? 
Like people love Jesus, and especially the parts where he's like talking about forgiveness and loving your neighbor as yourself, and all of those things are really good. But let's just leave out this whole thing about you know him being God. Here's what Lewis said. That's the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil in hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So you see, friends, the real question when it comes down to our lives, the greatest question that we will ever be faced with is, who is Jesus to you? Now, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. And these won't be up on the screen. We're going to be reading big portions of this story from the Bible. And so I'd invite you to to grab one of the the Bibles that's underneath a chair in front of you if you didn't bring it with you today. Matthew chapter 26 in the handout Bibles is on page 986. Now, as we look at this um, this story today, I want you to, to look at the responses of the people. Because all of them are, they, they either have already made up their mind about who Jesus is, or they're in the process of discovering for themselves, who am I going to say that Jesus is? And as we look at their different responses, we're going to see that they that each one of these conclusions, whether you believe Jesus is a liar or he's a lunatic or whether he's Lord, each one of them elicits a different response from us. If I believe Jesus is a liar, I'm going to respond to him in a certain way. If I think he's a lunatic, I'm going to respond to him in a certain way. If I believe he's Lord, I'm going to respond to him in a certain way. And at the end of the day, ultimately the question that I want to ask for you is how are you going to respond to Jesus? So here we are, Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 57. Starts off and it says, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now let me just stop right there. Because where we pick up this story today is that Jesus has just been arrested. And you'll remember that story a bit because this is shocking to the disciples. The disciples were not expecting Jesus to be arrested. In fact, the disciples thought that Jesus was going to establish his kingdom on the earth and that Jesus was going to be, you know, the ruler and he was going to rescue Israel from the Roman Empire. And uh, when Jesus is arrested, their whole life gets, you know, like turned upside down. This is like a blind side to them. So they're kind of in chaos, and Jesus is arrested, and now he's being taken to the Jewish ruling council, to the high priest. Now, you have to understand that 
as we've learned over the last couple of weeks, the nation of Israel is under Roman oppression. The Romans are the governing authority in the land. But the Romans have given some freedom to the, to the Jews to take care of their own matters. In fact, I think they kind of would rather that the Jews just kind of stayed out of their business and kept things quiet and didn't have anything you know, to complain about or anything. And so, so there's some authority that, that the, the Romans gave to the Jews to handle matters that, that were related to their religion, their spirituality. And so Jesus is arrested, and where is he taken? He's taken to Caiaphas, the high priest. And when you hear the word high priest, you just need to understand that this is as high as you go in the Jewish religious order. This is the dude. He's the buck stops here guy. Um, if something's going to, to arrive at him, it's already a really big deal. There's nowhere else to appeal to. He's the end dude. Okay. This is like going to the Supreme Court. So here it is. Jesus is arrested. He's taken to Caiaphas, the high priest where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Why do you think that Peter is even there? He's trying to figure out what's going on. He's, his whole world is upside down and he's trying to figure this whole thing out. And so he's curious. He's got to see what the outcome is. Well, verse 59 says this, the chief priests, so like these really important priests, and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. That's a really interesting statement, isn't it? This is like um, people just unashamedly saying, we got to find anything, even if it's false so that we can get this guy out of our hair. We have to shut him up. And so it says that they're looking for false witnesses, people who are going to lie so that Caiaphas, the high priest, will issue the decree that Jesus is going to be executed. So they're looking for, for ways to be underhanded and deceitful and trying to find anyone who would give false testimony in this court. Verse 60 but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Now that's interesting because what they finally get Jesus on here is this kind of obscure statement. He said, I'm going re- to destroy the temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And that's what they grab a hold of. And it becomes a really big deal because, as you read here, the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained, what? He remained silent. There's a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, that Hundreds of years before this occasion, um, the prophet Isaiah is talking about what this coming Messiah was going to be like. And when it talks about him in one part in Isaiah 53, it says, like a sheep before 
its shearers is silent. You know, this is an interesting picture, isn't it? You know, imagine yourself in that courtroom. In fact, imagine yourself as Peter. It's so that Peter snuck in and he's kind of hanging out in the background. And here's Jesus, who is the most revolutionary guy in the, in the land. Everybody's heard about him. They've heard about these miracles that he's performed. They've heard about, you know, the, the people that would say, I, I never walked in my life. And then Jesus came and I can walk now. And you hear these, uh, these stories about how he, he took the, uh, a few fish and a few loaves of bread and he fed all these people with it. You've heard these stories and the rumors have spread and, and you're standing back in the courtroom and you're just observing. And finally, you, you recognize what's going on. He's a threat. He's a threat to the Jewish religious leaders. And so they're looking for any way that they can to kill him. And what they finally get him on is just kind of like this obscure statement. I'm gonna, he said, I'm going to destroy the temple. He wasn't actually even talking about an act of terror, but that's what they're getting at. They're like, so are you saying you're going to destroy the temple? Like, really? And Jesus was silent. So the high priest said to him, verse 63, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Now I want you to remember this next statement. It'll be important in a few minutes. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do you need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He asked the people. and They had already made up their mind. And they say, He's worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? And they mock him. Now, I tried to think of a good example of what's really happening here. And I really couldn't come up with, with anything that is even remotely close. The closest that I came, I'm going to share with you here now, but bear with me because I, I understand it's not perfect, okay? But imagine that there's a group of children and they're playing baseball in the empty lot in their neighborhood. And one of the kids gets a hold of a good, good hit and he knocks it through the window of the old grouchy lady's house. Okay? And we're talking about the old grouchy lady that hates children, and this is going to be a really big deal. Now, imagine that off in the distance, a father of one of the boys sees the whole thing happen. And he uh, decides that he's going to go to the rescue. He understands that these boys... This is a big problem for them, and he's going to step in. He's going to intervene. He's going to, to step in and deliver them. He's going to save them, in essence. So the father shows up, 
And instead of the children running to the Father in mercy and begging Him, please help us, would you please help us, we've failed, we've wronged. Instead of running to Him with mercy and, and you know, begging for His forgiveness and asking for His help, guess what they do? They set up a trial. Now, this is what's so crazy. That instead of, you know, having the Father help them out of their situation, the Father came with a, with a helpful, willing heart. But the kids set up a trial and they get their little throne. And they set it down there and they sit down on their throne and they accuse the Father of something that He didn't even do. Do you see how absolutely bizarre this story is? Here you have this, you know, Caiaphas, this high priest, and he's sitting on his little throne before the king of kings who has done no wrong. Caiaphas is just as guilty as any other human being on the face of the planet. And you have all of these... um, you know, Jewish religious leaders that have already made up their mind and they're so callous and they're so hard and they're pointing their fingers and they're just eager to spit on Jesus. And here you have the King of Kings standing before them who has done no wrong and in fact is in the process of saving them. And what are they doing? They're getting out their little throne and they're setting up court. And do you see how ridiculous it is? You see how ridiculous this story is? But I want you to understand today that all of us have our little throne. And all of us are prone to sit on our little throne. And all of us like the feeling of being on our little throne. And we feel like we have all sorts of control. Oh, we love being on our throne. And we love calling the shots. And it's like, you know what? Jesus, you can take care of everything you know, after, from the moment that I die on. I'll give that to you. But in terms of what's happening here and now and today, I got this. Don't worry about it. I'm on my throne. And the foolishness that was taking place in that courtroom on that day when Jesus, the King of Kings, is standing before Caiaphas, the high priest, is the same foolishness that happens when we're sitting on the throne of our lives. So if there's one one thing that I need you to understand today is that we respond to this in different ways. Who did, the, who did the high priest, uh, who did the Jewish religious leaders, what did they believe about Jesus? Liar, lunatic, Lord. Some believed he was a lunatic. Most of them believed he was a liar. And what was their response? Kill him. There's always a response. What you believe about Jesus elicits a response. It always does. And for them that were believing that Jesus was a liar, their response was, we have to get rid of him. So the question number two in your notes is, what is your response? What's your response? Some will follow Jesus. Some will do that. 
I imagine that many of you in this room have made that decision. You said, you know what? I believe that Jesus is the one true king. He's Lord of all. And I'm going to follow him all of the days of my life. And there's some of you that have made that decision to follow him. But there are some that sadly will reject him. They'll reject him outright. That's what happened here um, in, this, uh, in this Jewish courtroom. It was an outright rejection. Jesus, who you, who, they say that you're this. Are, are, are you really, excuse me, the son of God? Yes, I am. Well, that's a lie. It can't be. No, he's... And they said, let's kill him. Some will outright reject him. But there's a third response, and I want you to, I want you to see this response um, as we fast forward in the story. Now, if you will, fast forward with me. The, the next little section is about uh, when Peter disowns Jesus. And in this week's Second Look video, this is the passage that I look at. And I, um, I want you to understand that there were some pitfalls that Peter fell into that led to him disowning Jesus. And by exposing those, I think it could be helpful for all of us to avoid falling into the same pitfalls in our own lives. And so I'd encourage you to watch the Second Look video this week. You can go to northhillsbaptist.net and click on Media, and it's there under Second Look. Or you can pick up a DVD copy out in the lobby, and we'd love to have you listen to that. Then after that, um, we get the little story of Judas hanging himself. And then right after that, we're going to pick up in verse 11 of chapter 27. It says, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor. So, Remember how I said that there is uh, the, the Romans are the, um, the government of the day. They're the occupying, conquering people. And the Jews were kind of just in charge of taking care of their, their little business over here. So now the Jews have decided that Jesus needs to be executed, but that's beyond the scope of what they can do. So they take Jesus to the governor. Now we're going to be looking at an even higher court. This is the Roman governor. Here he is. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, it's interesting, right? His wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. 
Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all answered what? Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I'm innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. And so friends, I think the third response that we can have is that we can wash our hands of Jesus. In other words, what what Pilate was saying here was, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I don't want to make the decision. I'm going to I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to you do what you want with him, but I'm done. I'm out. And I think there are many in our culture today, and maybe even you here this morning, that you've been intrigued by Jesus. You 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 kind of like going to church and hearing about Jesus. You kind of like this investigation process and figuring out who he is. But when it comes to the real question, like, are you going to surrender your life to this Jesus? You kind of just wash your hands of it. It's like, I don't know, I'll get to that maybe another day. I'm still intrigued. Like, I, 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 It's not like I'm mad at him or anything. I like to learn more. or like, But I'm just washing my hands just not making any decision, not ready to cross that. or I don't know what it is for many people, but I know that there are many that, that would even say that they're fond of Jesus, but they've never said, I'm a follower. I'm just kind of washing their hands. But friends, if you would take that, you know, in your notes, I said there, there's, there's really three responses. Some would follow him, some will reject him, and some will wash their hands of him. You need to cross off that last one because really there's only two responses to who Christ is. You can either follow him or you reject him. Washing your hands, like thinking that uh, maybe I'll get to that later, I'll get to the following Jesus part later, it's an act of rejection. So really there's only two responses. You can follow him or reject him. Pilate washes his hands of him and listen, listen to how the story ends. I shouldn't say story ends because we aren't even getting to the good part yet. How this little part of the story ends. So Pilate washes his hands of the situation. Verse 25, All the people answered, Let his blood be on us and on our children. Oh, that's bold. Verse 26, Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. And they put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews. 
and they spit on him and they took the staff and they struck him in the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him and then they led him away to be crucified. Remember how I said there's always a response? When the question comes, you know, who is Jesus? There's always a response. And for them, he's a liar or he's a lunatic. And the, the, the response that they give to that is just what we read. They, they weave together a, a crown of thorns and they shove it on his head. They spit in his face and they, they put him in a scarlet robe and they, Hail, King of the Jews, they mock him with. And you know what? I don't know about you, but when I think about the humiliation of that, when I think about what they're actually doing to the king of kings, it's unfathomable. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Remember earlier I told you, remember what Jesus said to the Jewish ruling council. He said, you will see me seated at the right hand of God. The book of Revelation is the last book in the New Testament and um, it was written by one of Jesus' disciples named John and he got, to, um, got this glimpse of what heaven was like and he, he wrote down some of these amazing things. Here's what he said in verse 12. He said, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking, speaking to me and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest and his head and his hair were like wool as white as snow and his eyes were like blazing fire and his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters and in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance and when I, John, saw him I fell at his feet as though dead then he placed his right hand on me and said do not be afraid I am the first and the last I am the living one listen, I was dead And behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. So when John describes this risen Savior, he sees Jesus for who he truly is, as the King of kings, as the one that was dead, and now he's alive again. How does he describe him? He's awesome. So awesome that he can't even come up with the words. It's like, man, he was like glowing and it was kind of like bronze in the fire and it was kind of like, he like had these stars in his hand. And out of his mouth came this sword. Now put yourself back into the, into the courtroom where there's this, this little Roman guy and he, he's, he's a judge and he's the, you know, the governor and he's seated on his little, his little throne said that. He was seated on the judgment seat. And here it is that, that he's accusing. He's, he's trying to come up with, what do I do with this Jesus and what's Jesus doing? Silent. Not giving any defense. Not, not trying to justify anything. Not trying to lessen his punishment. 
Jesus is on a mission. But friends, if Jesus would have revealed who he truly was, everyone in that courtroom would have what? Would have fallen on their face, just like John, and said, I'm dead. So why did he do this? That's, that's the third question. Why, did, why would Jesus do that? I mean, if this is such a, a, a bizarre story that this king that is so glorious, like we just read about in Revelation, why would he put himself at the mercy of this little governor sitting on his little throne who feels like he has all this authority, but really, in comparison, he's nothing? Why would Jesus do this? And friends, I think the response is, this was God's plan all along. This was God's plan all along. This is the, the way that God was going about fixing the problem of sin in the world. Now, there's lots of different places that I could take you to, to show you that Jesus is God's solution to the problem of sin. But since we're in Revelation and we've just had this kind of big vision of, of, of who God is, or who Jesus is, I want to invite you to go to Revelation chapter 5. And this is where we'll close. Again, it's the, it's the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5. And John is describing the throne room of God. This is on page 1218 in the handout Bibles. Verse four, he talks about the you know what the throne room of God looks like. But then in verse or in chapter five, as it starts out, it says, "Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll?' But no one in heaven." or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. And I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Now I know this is weird symbolism and it's, it's kind of like, I don't, I don't fully get it. But when John recognizes the problem, the problem is that there's a, there's a scroll here. And the scroll, you'll see later on in Revelation, that it's the judgment that God's going to pronounce on the world. So the, the, the big problem is that there's sin that has to be paid for. God's got to do something about it. But when this scroll is there, nobody is worthy to open it. And John is so moved by this that it says he wept. And he wept because no one was worthy. And friends, it's a huge problem. When you recognize that you are a sinner and that there's nothing you can do about it. When you recognize that you have sinned against God and there's no way that you can work yourself out of that. You can't help enough. You know, old ladies across the street, you cannot, you know, pick up the tab for somebody at lunch enough to pay for your sin. It's a huge problem. And John said, when I saw that nobody was, uh, was worthy to open the scroll, I wept and I wept. Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep! See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's Jesus, by the way, has triumphed. 
He has opened the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of all the saints, and they sang a new song. Listen, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I look and I, I, I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 upon 10,000. And they circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. There's always a response to who Jesus is. So what are the takeaways for us today? The first thing I would say is this. You have to get the Jesus question right. You have to get the Jesus question right. You can get all of the other questions right. I mean, you, can, you can build a business. You can own a Fortune 500 company. You can play in the NBA. You can... Whatever it is that, that it's like, okay, that's what I'm shooting for. You can get all of those questions right, but if you don't get the Jesus question right, you've got nothing right. You have to get the Jesus question right. And remember what we said, just washing your hands and putting it off and, and saying, you know, I just really don't want to make a decision about that. I'll just keep kind of, you know, investigating whatever. I'll hear them out. But I'm just, just going to wash my hands of it. Friends, there's really only two decisions and washing your hands is not one of them. You either follow Jesus or you reject him. You have to get the Jesus question right. Takeaway number two, there's only one true king and I'm not him. Friends, I want you to remember that, that just absolutely disturbingly idiotic picture that we have where the true king that we just read about from Revelation, who is majestic and he's beautiful and he's powerful and he's holy and he's worthy to receive power and honor and glory forever, he's standing before a man sitting on a throne. And I want you to imagine yourself sitting on your little throne. Because, oh, how we love our little thrones. We love our, you know, we love to be in control. We love to have that. And, and the question is, what are you going to do with Jesus who's standing in front of you? There really are only three 
options. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And all of those have different responses, don't they? Do you believe Jesus is a liar? Do you believe he's a lunatic? If so, put yourself in the governor's shoes. Condemn him to death. Have nothing else to do with him. But if he is Lord, then guess what? Get off your throne. That's number three. Get off your throne. Recognize that you know, Jesus, I feel really powerful in this little throne. I like to call the shots for my own life, but I, I'm not worthy to do that. I want, to, I want to follow you, the true King of Kings. And if you've never done that, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, if you've never responded to this, then you need to do that. You need to come to Christ and, and you need to say, I believe today, Jesus, that you are Lord. And for those of you that have been a follower of Christ for many years, don't think that we don't like to pick up our throne and sit on it. I think it's a daily surrendering of our lives again to Christ, to his leadership, his lordship in our lives. So as we close the service here this morning, the worship team is going to come up and we're going to sing a final song together taken from that book of Revelation, chapter 5, that we were, we were just talking about. But I want to give you an opportunity this morning to respond to Christ. You don't need a church service. You don't need a pastor to help you respond to Christ. You can do that on your own. You can do that at any time. But I do think there's something significant about putting a stake in the ground, about nailing it down, so you can say, yeah, I remember it was at North Hills Church before Easter 2014 when I trusted Christ as my Savior, when I surrendered my life to Him. And if that's you this morning, like if you're like, man, you're exactly right. I've never, like I believe this in my head, but I've never surrendered. I've never responded to what it means for Christ to be Lord. And you want to do that this morning? I'm going to give you an opportunity, and it's not going to be awkward. It's really between you and God, but I want to help to coach you through a little prayer that you could say to God. So would every head bowed and every eyes closed, if that's you this morning, if today is the day when you want to nail it down and you want to say, today I'm surrendering my life to Jesus as my Lord. Would you raise your hand so I could see it? I'd just like to know that. I'd just like to know that. That's great. Thank you. You can put your hands down. And you might say something like this to God. Lord, I'm sorry for for you've been there right in front of me all this time. but I've never responded to you. But today, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and that what you did on that cross by rising again from the dead, you did that for me. I believe in that today, Jesus. I ask you that you would take away my sin believe today that you're the only one who could do that, that there's nothing I could do apart from you. And so I trust you today, Jesus. And 
Today I want to tell you that I want to follow you. I want to get off of the little throne of my life and I want you to reign over my life. Thank you. And in your own way, you could just say a little prayer of thanks to the Lord. And Jesus, we, we tell you, you are awesome. Thank you. Thank you for what you did. There's no one else who could have done it. And you did it. And you, you took the beating. You took the crown of thorns. You took the insults. You took the death. And you paid the price that we could never pay. And we say thank you today. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to be to receive glory and honor and power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So as we close the service here, the ushers are going to come and they're going to take up our morning offering. And I'm going to invite you to stand to your feet. And let's just respond to the Lord with this song this morning. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain.